that is part of our text for today in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I invite you to open your Bible there to 1 Timothy. It is right next to the book of Paul. <laughs> Salvation is personal, but it is not private. God has called us to an individual salvation, but not an autonomous salvation. Now that doesn't sit very well, frankly, with American Christianity as it has deteriorated. Our culture exalts self-reliance, a do-your-own-thing, I'm-my-own-man kind of an idea. And that has crept into the church where we think that somehow we don't really need other people and we are self-sufficient. And yet God has called us to belong. He has called us to belong to His family and to its present expression in the world, the local church. And yet the importance of the church is minimized by multitudes of evangelicals. Kent Hughes, in his book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, observes this. We must wholeheartedly agree that without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, all is lost. But we must not mistakenly reason that one's relationship with Christ minimizes the importance of his church. Yet this is precisely what multitudes of evangelicals assume and act out. He goes on to say, church attendance is infected with a malaise of conditional loyalty which has produced an army of ecclesiastical hitchhikers. The hitchhiker's thumb says, you buy the car, pay for the repairs and upkeep and insurance, fill the car with gas and I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own and I'll probably sue. So it is with the credo of many of today's church attenders. You go to the meetings and serve on the boards and committees. You grapple with the issues and do the work of the church and pay the bills, and I'll come along for the ride. But if these things do not suit me, I'll criticize and complain and probably bail out. My thumb is always out for a better ride. And then he says this putative loyalty is fueled by a consumer ethos, a McChristian mentality, which picks and chooses here and there to fill one's ecclesiastical shopping list. There are hitchhikers who attend one church for the preaching and send their children to a second church for its dynamic youth program and go to a third, church, third church's small group. Church hitchhikers have a telling vocabulary, I go to, or I attend, but never I belong to, or I'm a member of. Pollster George Barna supports this saying, the average adult thinks that belonging to a church is good for other people, but represents unnecessary bondage and baggage for himself. So today at the end of the 20th century, we have a phenomenon unthinkable in any other century, churchless Christians. The importance of the local church, and yet just joining any church is not the answer either. Because many so-called churches fail the test of a genuine church, which is, as we have seen in the first chapter of First Timothy, staying on course with the message of the gospel. 
There are many so-called churches that have lost that message. They have lost their distinctiveness. They have lost their soul. They have forgotten the goal of ministry is changed lives, and the changed lives takes place through sound teaching of the Word of God. They have succumbed to strange doctrines, false theologies that have led them astray. And in doing so, they have gone astray. They have lost the way. How can a church stay on course? That's the question we're looking at in 1 Timothy 1. How does a church stay on course? Our text today takes us another step beyond last week's response and shows that people composing a church stay on track by having a right relationship with the captain. I'd like for you to begin reading with me in verse 12. I'll read, you follow along, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. To pick up a phrase from Hebrews 2.10 in the authorized version. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation and the head of his church. A vital relationship with Jesus Christ keeps one on course spiritually. How does a church stay on course? By having a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. How does an individual Christian stay on course in his life? By maintaining a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we see in our text, a vital relationship involves three things. First of all, embracing His saving grace. Secondly, employing His serving strength. And finally, enjoying His sovereign rule. Let's talk for a moment about embracing Christ's saving grace because it is that grace that deals with our sins and brings to us the joy of forgiveness. When we talk about a vital relationship with someone, we need to remember that a relationship begins with an introduction. It begins with a personal introduction that establishes a connection. And then after that, relationship develops. The Apostle Paul tells us about his experience with the saving grace of God. To show us how great God's grace was, he first goes back and gives us an examination of his own record in verse 13. It is clear that originally he saw Jesus Christ as a false Messiah. He saw the church 
as his enemy. Now, to be sure, Paul was a religious man, and outwardly he was righteous according to all the external demands of the Jewish religion. He was brilliant. He was educated. But there was one other thing about Paul that mattered above all of these. He was lost and bound for hell. He characterizes his activities before he knew Jesus Christ with three words. He says, first of all, I was formerly a blasphemer. One who speaks slander against another or against God. And of course he is talking about the way that he denied the deity of Jesus Christ in those days before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. When Jesus appeared to him in that bright shining light and Paul was, was thrown to his knees and blinded by that light for a period of time. Before that day, Paul looked upon Jesus Christ as a false god a false messiah, and blasphemed his name. He says, before I knew Christ, I was a persecutor. Keep your finger here, but go back to Acts chapter 8 with me and just look at one of the statements regarding Paul in these days before he came to the Savior. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. You remember he was called Saul in those days. And it says, Acts 8, verse 1, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. The language pictures Saul here like an angry beast who would drag people off to prison. Paul says, I was a persecutor. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he also persecuted whom? Jesus himself. For when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The third word that he uses to describe what he was like before he came to Christ was that he was a violent aggressor. The idea in this word is that, that Saul, as he was called then, purposely humiliated and hurt people. He was a sadist in one sense. He was committed to an indignity and insult against those who named Christ and was not embarrassed to commit atrocities against Christians. The Apostle Paul was as bad as anybody that he listed in verses 9, 10, and 11 earlier in our chapter. He puts himself in the same category as these people who broke the law. He was as bad as anyone else. In fact, he, he saw himself as so bad that he says, I was the foremost. I was the head of the list. I was the chief of sinners. 
Now, we are not going to excuse that this morning as hyperbole and some sort of false humility. What Paul said, he meant. And if you and I had lived in that day, we would understand why the Christians at first were so terrified to accept Paul because of his reputation as a very evil man who was hostile to Christianity in the name of religion. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. That's how he saw himself. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says, I am the very least of the saints. And so we examine Paul's past and we see why he is so humbled at the grace of God. He had blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ, denying that he was God. He had persecuted the church of Christ and persecuted Jesus himself in doing so. And he was a violent, sadistic aggressor against those who named Christ. That's why he and we must marvel at the extension of God's mercy and grace to him. In verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In verse 13 he says, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Two words here show us the extension of God's kindness toward Paul. When God gave him mercy, he did not give to Paul what he deserved. And when God gave him grace, he gave him what he did not deserve. The result was that there was tremendous life change in Paul. Whereas before he was ignorant in unbelief, now God gives to him faith that finds its source in Jesus Christ. Whereas before he was a violent persecutor, an enemy of the church, now God fills him with love that springs from Jesus Christ. There is life change in Paul because of the work of God's grace as he experienced forgiveness of his sins. You say, well, how can God possibly forgive someone like this? We ask today, how can God forgive someone who is so evil, who is so wicked, who, who commits heinous crimes against humanity? How can God ever forgive someone as bad as that? The answer is that God forgives because of what he did for us in Jesus Christ. This is something you can count on, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All kinds of sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world, that's the Incarnation. That he, the eternal Son of God, came into the world and joined himself to human flesh, being born in Bethlehem as Jesus. And he grew and lived a perfect, sinless life. But then went to the cross and died a horrible death in order that he might save sinners. Jesus Christ did not come into the world merely to set a good example for us to follow. 
He did not come into the world to show us how loving and compassionate God is. He did that, but he came for more. He came in order to offer himself as a substitute on the cross for our sins. To lay down his life in our place. So that all of God's wrath that we deserve might be poured out upon him. And then God can forgive us. You see, he came for Paul. To save Paul, he came for you too. I have in my hands a testimony that uh, is from a gentleman who attended our church for a while. He is now back in Korea, his homeland. His name is Du Shik Kim. And this was the testimony that he shared a while back at his baptism. He says, I was an ordinary non-Christian who was self-made. I valued and took pride in hard work. But as I got older, I found my hard work was not enough to resolve unexpected problems. I was angry at the world for difficult situations when I tried to do my best and live righteously. On the other hand, in order to solve my pain and hard situations with my limited ability, I sought help from neighbors, co-workers, friends, and those with power. By relying on them, I solved my problems. At that time, I felt I really didn't want to solve my problems this way, but I felt helpless because all the world operated this way. As I aged, the matters got harder and harder. I compromised with the world and relied on earthly thinking more and more. However, I justified myself thinking I was a good person. I still felt I was a man without fault and with superb character. Sometimes I staggered home late late as an ugly drunkard after drinking with my friends. However, the next morning I put on my suit and went to school to lecture, pretending to be a perfect professor. Sometimes at home as husband and head of my family, I was full of contradictions. Yet outside I acted as someone without any problems. I often justified myself saying everyone else behaves the same as me in this world. About five years ago, I was in several difficult situations and greatly discouraged, and I began to seek for change in my life. I could have continued to live as I had lived, but deep down I really did not want to, and I was seeking a different way of life. To sort out my problems and seek the answer, I started attending church. This was in Korea. I was influenced by my brother-in-law, who was a seminary student, and my wife, who was a Christian. One thing I experienced while attending church was that I examined my heart, asked for forgiveness, and prayed. I felt my heart was cleansed and filled with something, but in reality, this was isolated to Sunday only. While this was going on, I had a fortunate chance to come to the United States as an exchange professor at the expense of my country. While here, with the help of Christian friends, I attended American church, Grace Church Roosevelt, and was able to make American friends especially through Bible study in the Korean small church and Bible study with an American friend, I began to see my true self as a church attender. I called myself a Christian just because I attended church, but I realized in reality my thought and actions were not any different than non-Christians. Someone asked me, if you think you're a Christian, are you saved? If you're saved, how do you know for sure that you're saved? I was unexpectedly stunned with these questions. I could not understand why I was so reluctant to answer these simple questions. One day during Bible study in small church, 
the concepts of God's way of biblical principles and redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ came to my heart and I truly understood for the first time. That afternoon I questioned in my heart if worldly knowledge and methods which I relied on were the best and only way, why was I still a person full of conflicts, troubles, and pain? On the other hand, I thought, if I lived my life according to God's principles in the Bible, I could overcome my problems. While having these thoughts, I came to believe that my sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ based on scriptures. And he goes on to talk about the change in his life because of that experience with God's grace. That's why Jesus came into the world, to save sinners, whether white or yellow or red or black, of whatever ethnic background, however deeply one has sinned, or if one be a professor in a, in a university who outwardly has everything together but inwardly is eaten away. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of all kinds. And Paul's conversion is an example of the depths of God's grace. He says in verse 16, For this reason I found mercy that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. If you think that you have sinned too much, that you have blasphemed too much, that you've been too evil of a person, I point you to the Apostle Paul as an example of the patience of Jesus Christ. And that today he is able to extend his grace to you if you will repent of your sin and believe that he died on that cross for you. And if you will receive him into your heart as your Lord and Savior, you can experience today the cleansing and the life change that his grace brings. Will you trust the captain? He is the captain of our salvation. Will you trust him? You see, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ begins with embracing his grace. But it doesn't stop there. That's sort of the introduction. It has to go beyond that. And so we see, secondly, that Paul says in verse 12 that a vital relationship with Jesus Christ involves employing his serving strength. Now, whereas his grace deals with our sins, his strength deals with our weaknesses. If salvation does not result in our serving Jesus Christ, we have to question the genuineness of our experience with him. Because, you see, receiving Christ means surrendering to his will and to his lordship in our lives. And yet there are some who, having trusted Christ, respond to opportunities to serve him by saying, as Moses did, well, who am I? I don't have training I've never done anything like that before. I, I can't get up in front of people. I, I can't talk that way. I can't do that. And these excuses come to our minds. And yet it is these very weaknesses in our lives that can become the demonstration of God's strength in us. His grace strengthens us so that we are made sufficient for whatever he asks us to do. God is not looking for great ability. He is looking for reliability. The Apostle Paul said, he found me faithful and so he shoved me into ministry. Jesus Christ is calling every one of us who knows him 
as Lord and Savior to serve him. There are no exceptions to that. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. May the grace of God never be in vain in the life of any of us. You see, there is a place where you can and should serve Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, Emily Woolkey, our director of children's ministry, made an announcement about having to reduce the scope of our children's ministries because we could not find people who would willingly serve in that area. And uh, it was a shocking announcement that there were some classes not going to be held, that certain parts of Awana were not going to take place because we simply did not have people who would serve. I'm happy to say that after that announcement that she made, more than 20 people came up and said, where can I serve? So that today our children's ministry is fully staffed and functioning. And I think the same is true with Awana, which begins this week. Now, I thank God for that response, but why do we have to get to a crisis before we say, I'll serve? That isn't God's plan. Our service to Jesus Christ needs to be willingly. It needs to be joyful and upfront. And we're standing on the line saying, what can I do? What can I do? Instead of getting into a position where we feel like we're being forced or coerced because of a crisis. So if today you have weaknesses and those weaknesses are causing you to hold back and say, well, I can't do it. Oh, I'd like to, but, but I have these problems. Then I want you to know if you're going to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to go beyond embracing His grace to the point that you are also enjoying His strength. You are experiencing His strength in those weaknesses in your life so that you're serving the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Will you trust the captain? Will you trust him for the strength that you need to work in that area, to be that usher, to sing in the choir, to do whatever it is that God's calling you to do? Please don't allow yourself to be like those Christians that Kent Hughes talked about earlier as I quoted him who just kind of float around and never plug in. That is not God's plan. However common it may be in America today, it is not God's plan. It's not biblical Christianity. If a church is going to stay on course, it must stay on course by having a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And a church will have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ so long as those who know Christ in it are employing His strength in serving Him. And then finally, the Apostle Paul tells us that if we're going to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, it means enjoying His sovereign rule. By the way, when we talk about serving Christ, today out underneath the big top, you're going to have the opportunity to see 20 or 30 or 40 ministries. You will be overwhelmed with opportunities. Don't think you have to do everything, but find something. 
Find some table out there that's got some information that interests you and decide, I'm going to do this. God helping me. God strengthening me in my weaknesses. I'm going to do this. And get involved. And employ his strength. But then we must enjoy his sovereign rule. If his strength deals with our weaknesses, his sovereign rule deals with our questions. If you and I are going to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, something has to happen to the questions that arise in our minds. And we all get them occasionally. We are disappointed. An opportunity comes, we don't know what to do. We have a question. A tragedy befalls us. Our family begins to fall apart. We had prayed and the answer didn't come the way we had prayed. Questions come to mind. And those questions eventually, if they're not settled, can eat away at a vital relationship with Christ. So how do we maintain that vital relationship? It is by enjoying His sovereign rule. In his statement of praise in verse 17, the apostle makes three statements of doxology. He praises God, first of all, that he is the king. He praises God for his kingly rule in the world. If he is God, he is in control. Secondly, he praises him for his divine nature. He says of God that he is eternal. He always has been, always will be. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's eternal and he's immortal. The idea means imperishable. God never declines. We've been enjoying the, the fruit of the harvest this year. Going to the farmer's market and bringing it home. We've had tomatoes and pears. You know, all that good stuff that you have this time of year. And we put it in the basement where it's cool. But after a while, what happens? It begins to perish. It declines in its potency and its taste. What he tells us here is that the king never declines at all. He's imperishable. He's immortal. What he was in the beginning, he is now and he always will be. And then he praises God that he is invisible. That he is a spirit. He is not like us. He is real, but he is spirit. He is invisible. And the third statement that he makes about God is his unique place. He says he is the only God. The only God. There is no other God in the world. There are many who are called gods, but they are not gods. He is the only God. His uniqueness is pointed out. Now, what's the implication of what Paul says in this verse? It is that all of the issues, all of the questions of life fall under the sovereign rule of this God. All of them. And we can know that He is with us in them all. Surely that would bring us to worship as it did the Apostle Paul, as he does in verse 17. All of the questions, all of the heartaches, all of the tragedies, all the questions of life fall under this assurance. God is King. Oh, worship the King. All glorious above. You and I can enjoy that sovereign rule. When we do, it brings answers. 
It brings release. It brings rest to our hearts. Will you trust the captain? I don't know where you are today in, in your life, what issues may be there, but will you today acknowledge that he is the king? That he's sovereign over them? That he is going to use them? That he is measuring your experiences? That he has the right to order your life the way he wants to? Enjoy the sovereign rule of God. When our lives are filled with turmoil and conflict and trouble, because we don't, we can never have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. That relationship is vital, it's living, it's nurturing to us when you and I come to the place of resting in God's sovereignty. Unless we have a vital relationship with the captain, we'll lose our way. We'll stray off course. It's just a matter of time. It may not happen today or this afternoon, but if we don't have that vital relationship, we will begin to go off course somewhere along the way. Now, if that's already happened to you, I hope today you will notice how you've drifted and will repent of that. And in that repentance, surrender afresh to Christ, asking Him to bring that relationship to you so real and fresh again. He wants to do that. In His grace, He will do that. And if you are one who is not a Christian, who has no vital relationship because you've never taken that first step to embrace the grace of God, to receive it as your own, will you do it today? Will you trust Him, make Him your own, and experience the forgiveness of sin? It is only then that really you can extend grace and forgiveness to those around you. Trust the captain. Get your life on course and then stay on course by experiencing this wonderful relationship with Him that He wants you to know. Enjoy His sovereign rule. Experience His strength in your weakness. Embrace His grace and worship Him. Let's pray. Now around this auditorium as God the Holy Spirit finishes His work in our hearts for this moment. If your life is off course, will you see where you've gone astray and acknowledge it to God? He's not going to keep you in the dark as to where that began. He'll point it out to you. Will you confess your sins to the Lord and receive His grace for that forgiveness today? Will you surrender your heart to Him, recognizing that He is the King, and ask Him to take control of your life? and to fill your life with a fresh, new, meaningful relationship with Him. Father, I pray for those who need to do that this morning. Give them, I pray, that grace in their hearts right now to respond. To respond to the work of your Spirit. Will you respond? If that's your heart's desire, you're saying, I've strayed, I'm coming back. I'm yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. I'm calling Him the King. Will you just lift your hand and put it down?
I want this vile relationship and I'm coming back. God bless you. Someone else? I want to have this vital relationship so that my life will stay on course, so that our church will stay on course. Is there someone here who would say, Pastor, I've not even yet made that first step. I've not experienced a personal relationship or introduction to Christ. And today I want to receive Him, to embrace Him and His grace, and know the forgiveness of my sins. Surely if God can forgive a man like Saul of Tarsus and make him an apostle, He can forgive me for what I've done. And He can because of Christ's death for you. By the lifted hand will you say, I today want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Is there one here who would say that? I lift my hand to say, I want Christ today in my heart. I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I want his grace in my life. Oh, Father, I pray that you will press that home to any person here who is still toying with that decision in the balance. And yet today, may there be the decision to trust the Savior. Lord, we acknowledge your kingship. We thank you for your saving grace, for your strength that helps us in our weaknesses, for your sovereign rule over all of life's circumstances. May we live in the joy of that and stay on course. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing a chorus before we go. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. We're using the authorized version. If you don't know these words, you can open your Bible back to the text we were, 1 Timothy 1. But let's sing that chorus together. I thought, we, here we go. You don't have it? All right. I thought Paul was going to be here. I guess he's out with the band already. Let's sing together. Now unto the King eternal, invisible, invisible, the only wise God, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How many of you have never sung that before? It sounded that way. <laughs> Open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. You'll have the words. And then let's sing it once more. It's a very simple tune. It's a tune of giving worship and praise to the Lord. Let's sing it again. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Now, before we go, I'd like for you to reach around and share God's love and grace with someone near you. Will you do that? And then we'll see you out there at the ministry fair in just a few minutes. God bless you.